This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's really a special treat for me today to be able to host my friend and colleague, Michael O'Hare. Michael O'Hare is a very special individual. We first got to know each other in the late 70s, early 80s. We team taught uh, courses at Harvard on public management. I was a student and he was the teacher. What? what? Nobody told me that. But we were both faculty with some other people as well. But uh, Michael's uh, got an extraordinarily interesting and eclectic career and set of interests, which are in the uh, sheets in the back. You can get them. He was educated at Harvard in architecture and engineering. He taught at the Kennedy School. He taught at MIT. And he's been a Goldman School faculty member for about 25 years now, maybe a little more. Um, he also... I'm starting to figure it out. Starting to figure it out. He also uh, served in the Massachusetts state government in the environmental area. He was at the Museum of Fine Arts of Boston, one of the great museums of America. And... Um, so he's had, he's had practical experience in the policy world as well as academic experience. Two things that are not on his bio that I want to mention. He grew up in Manhattan as a Red Sox fan. This is a very dangerous uh, combination. The other thing, which you, some of you may know if you're familiar with Harvard, he was a, a, a junior fellow at Harvard. Junior fellow is the single most prestigious academic appointment at Harvard. It involves a commitment by the university to fund an individual with extraordinary promise at the beginning of their career for three years with a substantial stipend with no requirements whatever other than for, other than for them to do their own scholarly work. It's not a degree program. They don't have to submit papers. They don't have to do anything. So I happen to look up here because I remember a few of the people, but I, there were so many. Uh, here are some of the people who have been colleagues, essentially, members of the Society of Fellows with Michael O'Hare. See if you recognize the names. The behavioralist B.F. Skinner. <clears throat> um, economist Paul Samuelson. Historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. Presidential advisor McGeorge Bundy. Philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn, biologist E.O. Wilson, Henry Rozovsky, distinguished professor of Jap- the Japanese economy, and the journalist for the New Republic, Leon Wieseltier. It's a small group of people in a variety of fields. Michael is a member of that group. Um, over the years, he studied public management and written about it. He studied local government in Italy. Uh, he studied arts policy, which he has extraordinary knowledge. And he's, his classes are always in great demand. He does a lot of executive uh, teaching as well, executive program teaching. So you're in for a real treat today. He's been a student and a kind of personal troublemaker on pedagogy for a long time here at Berkeley. And he gets people's attention, and it plays, he plays a very important role. And that's the subject, in a way, of today's uh, talk, Quality Assurance Program for Higher Education Pedagogy. Please welcome Michael O'Hare. Thank you, Michael. Okay, so here's what I'd like to do today. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, why quality assurance matters for us at all. Um, I want to talk about, uh, take a managerial perspective on how we should think about what kind of resources we would invest in this enterprise. <clears throat> and then, um, so I'm totally, uh, totally tipping my hand. I'm going to make a pitch for a quality assurance program and make promises for what it can deliver that will cost 1.5% of our teaching payroll or of our faculty payroll. And if anybody thinks that 1.5% of our faculty payroll is too much to invest, then you, now would be a polite time to go and do something else. Um, 
but that's the that's the sort of the the uh, ceiling that I said. Well, you know, what can we fit in? What can we fit in that? <clears throat> so I want to I want to start with some assumptions that we can all agree with. Teaching in U.S. higher education is terrific, especially here. We have great teachers, and our students learn so much, and we care so much about it. Are we all on the same page? Okay, this is not broken. <clears throat> to which I say, so what? It's not an interesting observation. There's no action implication by an absolute scale measurement that something is very good or very bad. The only interesting question is, could it be even better? How much would it cost? And is it worth doing it? <clears throat> so again, if we're on the same page here, <clears throat> so here's a little, little bit of motivation. Could, could we have, in higher education, generally, and Cal in particular, could we have even better learning outcomes? Should we, you know, do we have anything to aspire to? And there's evidence around that we definitely could. The uh, <clears throat> first fact here is from the uh, immortal uh, private universe film that the Annenberg Center made about 20 years ago. No, I don't, I'm not familiar with new data, but I don't think it's changed very much. Uh, the first two. And the third one is right out of the headlines. <clears throat> so this is, the, <clears throat> this is the question I'm undertaking to, uh, uh, undertaking to attack. Quality assurance has been a roaring success in industries outside our own and in our own industry and research. We have a terrific quality assurance program. We have terrific teaching. Teaching is great. We don't have a terrific teaching quality assurance program, and it's a contrast that I'm going to draw in a little more detail down the line. But if we wanted to do that, what would it look like? What, what would a Toyota manager, and this is an industry that's made its products better and cheaper every year for 40 years now, no ceiling, no ceiling management, continuous improvement. It was really delivered in industry. I mean, how much better is your phone than the phone you had 10 years ago or 15 years ago? A lot, and not that much more expensive. So, <clears throat> all right, now the next, the next few slides I stuck in here because I was undecided about whether I'd make everybody use a clicker, and then I decided, okay, we don't have to, <laughs> have to load too much into this. <clears throat> but I'd like you to imagine that you each had a clicker. How many people know what I'm talking about? How many people don't know what I'm talking about? Admitted. Okay. A clicker is a radio that you hold in your hand with five buttons. I have a receiver up here that's connected to my computer. I put a question on the screen, a short answer question on the screen. You push the appropriate button, and I get a histogram of your replies, which I can then put up on the board, and we can talk about it. It's nice for motivating class discussion when you get a big spread, people disagree. You say, okay, well, we have something to talk about. We don't agree. So I'd like to imagine that you had clickers <clears throat> just to sort of you know, get our priors revealed to ourselves. Imagine you had clickers and think about the answers you would give and think about the answers your colleagues would give. What would you expect to see if I could put that histogram up? And I think about the differences between this one and that one. This is in the pedagogy conversation. These are kind of loaded questions. I mean, I have an idea how this comes out. I take a show of hands for this. How many people would click A, B, C? Not too many Cs. Okay. Okay, so now we'll turn to a little motivation. Um, why is this so important? So why does it, why does it matter? You know, why, why should quality assurance in this particular context matter? And these are the four main reasons. 
uh, of which possibly the third one is the most important. A real quality assurance program could be predicted to have positive consequences for student learning. Now, as an extra, as a free extra, it also has quality, positive consequences for us because it's much more fun to teach well than it is to not. And, you know, we've got to do it anyway, so we might as well enjoy it. <clears throat> but I, I want to emphasize the third one. This applies at Stanford, too. It's not just public universities, because Stanford is heavily supported by the federal government. Because every dollar that anybody gives to Stanford by a wealthy Californian is half public money. Not to mention their tax exemption and all the other kinds of indirect assistance that private universities get. <coughs> so we have, I, I just feel as a, as a policy professor that we have special responsibilities about this. Okay, so different ways to teach. And um, I, didn't, I don't want to make this a talk about teaching uh, unless people really want to get into it later because <coughs> uh, I'm not, uh, not going to go on, on autopilot for an hour. Um, but I just wanted to illustrate that, that there are different ways to teach. And here are two, just for example, here are two classic models, um, which we call theory T and theory C. <clears throat> this is Model T. Um, and it has seven steps. And this is a mode of teaching at which we're all expert uh, for, first, because it was done to us for at least 12 years and probably 16. And second, because we've been doing it to students for the most part for most of our teaching careers. So, and we're really good at this. Different people have slightly different versions, but it's a same basic seven steps. Does have some issues. And there's a contrasting model, uh, Model C. T is for t telling, Model T is for telling, but also Model T recalls the uh, incredible innovation that Henry Ford put on the roads in uh, 19, what, 19, 19, 19, and then refused to change for 10 years, during which time the world advanced, the Model T remained the same, and Chevrolet ate Ford's lunch and never gave it back. So this, you know, it's kind of ambivalent about this Model T idea. So this is theory C. It's much simpler. Uh, and we've all had experience with this model, too, but not necessarily in the same context. You assign students a task somewhat beyond their ability. The students do the task, preferably with everybody watching. Um, and then the instructor kibitzes as they go along. And then everybody talks about what happened. And then there's some, there's some peripheral activities, occasional short lectures, of which my favorite is this one from John Moriarty. Uh, I got to go to his opera staging class at the New England Conservatory. It's quite eye-opening. Uh, and this was the lecture of that class. Students got up. They performed the, scene from, the cafe scene from La Boheme. And then everybody talked about why did you walk around behind her chair when the music modulated? Did, wouldn't you want to be there before or maybe after? And then everybody discussed which was better. And <clears throat> it was all about alternatives and options. And that uh, this model is in circulation under the name Active Learning and Flipped Classroom as well. But it faces the same deadly risk as Theory T. What happens on the black day that one of the sprinters can actually outrun the coach? And the answer is, uh, the sprinters can always outrun the coach. <laughs> it's not a problem for this method. Now, why is theory C interesting? <clears throat> theory C is interesting because um, it is the pedagogy in universal use in every context in which the task is to develop a skill, except broadly in higher education. You want to learn how to paint. 
I want to learn how to sail a boat, learn how to weld, play the piano, including very high-level, what I would claim are very high-level skills, like how to be an architect. The first day of architecture school, and this has been with me ever since, I came to architecture school from an ordinary college where I was, you know, I had a lot of theory teaching, not all. <coughs> the professor comes in with a bunch of site plans, passes them out, uh, suburban lot, here's the street, here's the North Arrow, so you know which way the sun shines, some dimensions, and he says, design a house for a family of four, mom, dad, two kids, a dog and a cat, maximum 2,500 square feet, and then he went to leave the room. <coughs> and we all said, oh, wait, 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 how do we do that? And he said, oh, that's a good question. I like soft pencil and tracing paper, but some people like to go to a model right away. But whatever works for you is fine. And he was gone for two weeks. By the end of two weeks, everybody had designed a house for mom and dad and a dog and a cat. And he was circulating around the desk looking at the houses we had designed. And we were also looking over each other's shoulders incessantly saying, what did you do there? What did you do there? Architecture, by the way, has no copyright. (laughs) The whole idea of innovation and intellectual property is different in the arts. <clears throat> and it's the, it's the, okay, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on why I think Theory C has a lot to offer us as a way of teaching. What I really want to talk about is maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not the best way to teach. Maybe there are other even better ways. What kind of management program <clears throat> should we put in place to make sure that we're finding the best ways and putting them in practice? So this is just a couple more of the headroom examples. This is from um, um, Frank Nascazi, is a high school uh, high school science teacher who has a really interesting blog about teaching science. And this was a uh, from a couple of years ago. This was about pseudo teaching, where you know the sage on a stage performance, and it looks like wow, boy, that's really great, and. uh, musical accompaniment and the chalk doesn't squeak and no learning is happening. And Feynman's diagnosis is that no learning is happening because the students aren't doing the learning. And if we have time later, we can talk a little bit about pseudo-learning, which is the the risk that we have to protect ourselves against. um, That the kind of learning we can be seduced into delivering if we don't watch ourselves and think about pedagogy carefully. So what's it worth? If it were possible, if it were possible to significantly improve teaching, how much should we be willing to spend on this enterprise? You may have different numbers. These are a little out of date. It costs about $300,000 to teach a course. For, I think these are 50 students. The number we don't pay a lot of attention to is that one, of course. But um, I've, been, uh, I've been thrown among economists for a fair part of my life, and they've trained me to think about opportunity costs, or at least to pretend I do. And that's... <clears throat> so I do. So here's a number. This number is larger than I expected. If you could buy it for that, you should be willing, given what we're spending, to create this learning now. If you could get 5% more of it for 45 grand or less per professor per year, uh, then you should be willing to spend it. What would be the measure? 5% of what? Of $305,000 worth of learning. If the learning created by this enterprise isn't worth $305,000, then we should be doing something else entirely. But we act as though it is, because we keep doing it. We buy this and deliver it. Well, if you could get 5% more and so on. Everybody see the, everybody understand the, okay. Okay, so there's different models of quality assurance, different ways to go about this. And here are some. The quote, uh, quote in the first bullet is from an economist colleague of mine about teaching. That, who said, that's all we have to do about teaching is we have to get the money incentives right and people will teach better. 
<clears throat> the second one is one of my favorites. It keeps coming up in conversations like this, and the and I. The only thing I know to say about that is to ask whether you would get on an airplane maintained on that principle. I would, couldn't go near it. So we do, we have a program. We have a program where we poll the students at the end of each course and then we amalgamate that data and use it for promotion and tenure decisions on this principle. So we're doing that. So if you don't like those, and I urge you not to, as it's not that we shouldn't do any, well, there's some things we really shouldn't do, <clears throat> like denying the opportunity. Um, but we do have a model. We're actually very good at this. In another context, and the other context is research QA, where um, we have not only great research, and as I said, we've all agreed we have great teaching. The interesting question is whether it could be even greater. But in research, we have really great research. We're very proud of it, and people admire us for it. So what's that system look like? Maybe we can learn something from the research quality assurance program that's typical in R1 universities? This is another clicker question. And unless there's been more recent research, um, I believe the answer is B. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not C. And and this goose is cooked. I mean, the, the research is in. SETs are not measuring student learning. If student learning is what we care about, we need to do something else. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be surveying students and collecting this data. It's often interesting and useful. But my friend Richards, who's sitting in the back row waiting for a chance to heckle, um, gave a wonderful talk last week at the Goldman School and basically said, look, this is what we know. This is real research. Now, this is a moral problem for us. Um, if we don't believe in research, and by that I mean act on it, then who are we? If we don't believe in research, then who are we and what standing do we have to demand public support, or for that matter, market support. Why would we ask anybody to buy our product? Because, I mean, McDonald's doesn't build its reputation on research. It builds its product on something else, the smile and the yum and the special sauce. We're all about respecting science. And the science is in on SET. So that can't be it. But there's another problem. And that is that we're also a research institution. Importantly, one might say mainly, there are jokes that circulate. Uh, if your students can understand you, you're probably not very smart, right? Or, uh, well, I think I had it on a previous slide. If uh, teaching is the tax you pay to do your research, and tax avoidance is the duty of a citizen. Tax evasion is a crime, but tax avoidance is the duty of a citizen. Okay, they're kind of lame jokes, but the fact that they circulate tells us something. Here's a production possibility frontier. If we're here and we want to do better teaching, it must necessarily be, again, you know, I hang out with economists and I'm happy to retail the insights that they've shared with me, then it must be the case that you're going to pay a price in teaching. Teaching is going to go down. <clears throat> if you want more research... Right? Teaching goes down. If you want more teaching, research is going to go down. But that's another irrelevant observation. There's nothing in economic theory that says that any organization is actually at its production possibility frontier. There is one out there. Occasionally, you bump into it. But for the most part, it's constantly moving outward as a result of research and organizational learning. So the wise manager simply denies its existence as well as try to move up and to the right and see what happens. 
if you believe you're on the frontier, you will never be able to get past it. But if you, like the tiger, you know, that walks back and forth where the cage bars used to be because he's got the habit when you take away the cage. But if you deny its existence, you could very well get gains in both. <clears throat> For example, maybe they're complements, not substitutes. Never mind if you would learn more in your courses. Okay, so um, here's, uh, here's what I promised to pitch to you. Where did I learn this from? I didn't make it up. This is a sketch of the quality assurance program, and it's a real program, and there are administrative actions and individual actions at every step of this program. What do we do? How did our research get to be so great? Well, <clears throat> first of all, we do it together a lot. We co-author papers. We talk about what we're doing. <clears throat> we watch each other work in various ways, including especially reading each other's products in draft form and then writing on them and calling up on the phone and saying, I can't believe you wrote this ridiculous paper. How aren't you aware, with the, aren't you aware of the work by so-and-so? You guys know how that works. <clears throat> and we talk about what we see that we didn't do. We go to conferences to be able to do it. We write book reviews. Now, this program has a very high ratio of formative to summative critique. That's important. Sooner or later, we decide whether to give somebody tenure or promote them in large part on the basis of research product. And that's totally appropriate. If, you know, this is a community of researchers, we want to promote good scholars. We've got to look at the scholarship. But along the way, there's this very dense cycle of activity that isn't about promotion and tenure and judgment and grades. It's about, hey, how could I do this even better? Can I borrow your computer? Can I borrow your algorithm? <clears throat> and... Do it all the time. I mean, it's a typical first sentence of an abstract. It's not unique to us on the research side. So compare. This is my, my favorite, one of my most influential intellectual gurus is Edwards Deming. How many people know who Edwards Deming is? Not too many. Um, Edwards Deming is a psychologist and statistician <coughs> who tried in the uh, 60s and 70s tried to teach American manufacturers how to improve their quality and how to run a more humane workplace and a lot of other, but these things tend to be compliments, by the way, um, and how to make their products cheaper. And nobody listened. And coming out of World War II, the Japanese were equipped to make products that they clearly couldn't build an economy on, like little paper um, parasols that go in a Mai Tai. And anything that was labeled made in occupied Japan, um, not too many of us are old enough to remember that label, but <laughs> that was a sign of low quality, right? This is cheap, crummy goods. And the Japanese said, we've got to fix this, and landed on Deming and invited him to come to Japan and teach them about quality. Profit not without honor, save in his own country. And the quality prize now in Japanese industry that media gives out every year is called the Deming Prize. <clears throat> so I'm a big fan of Edwards Deming. There are different versions of quality practice. Um, but these are the main pieces. Quality starts at the top. That's very important. You don't announce, all right, everybody, I want more quality, and then go back to the boardroom and have meetings with investors and stuff like that. There's got to be real action and commitment from the top of the organization. Quality is made by groups. Uh, it's a collaborative process. Even if there's one guy screwing the fenders on the car as it comes along down the assembly line, the overall quality of that product is a collaborative enterprise. And there's a lot of individual responsibility. There are stories about this, like um, <clears throat> how important this, just how important this whole revolution was when General Motors was tired of Toyota eating their lunch. They had to go hat in hand and say, would you please teach us how to do this and we will jointly make Saturns in um, Fremont 
and they did until Tesla took it over. Now Tesla makes Teslas. But that was a, that, imagine how humiliating that was for General Motors, who had thought that they were you know, the lords of automotive manufacturing. <clears throat> um, next to each workstation in a Toyota assembly line, last time I looked, is a big red button. And the um, non-negotiable instructions for the workforce is, if anything comes down the assembly line that looks wrong to you, you are to hit that button, which will stop the entire assembly line. And your quality circle will then gather around you to see what happened and how not to do it again. Stop the whole assembly line. <clears throat> Measure everything. I said Deming is a statistician in addition to being a psychologist. You've got to have data. You've got to look at stuff. Um, like, uh, just as, uh, this is kind of a right-wing tactic. I don't know who, my student, Paloma, and <laughs> GSI is here, so I feel responsible to stick closer to the truth than I otherwise would. You can ask her later. <laughs> um, I just asked her to, recently to time how much time students are talking in my class and how much time I'm talking. And we collect a few days of that, and then I can put it on the board and talk with students about whether that's the right numbers which would one be higher, one be less. How many students are talking? There's a bunch of stuff that you can measure, and you look for spikes and peaks, and you'll learn a lot about, whoa, that's really interesting. You know, any excursion means that there's something going on that deserves attention. Um, <clears throat> watch each other work. Talk about what happens. Don't give prizes or pick winners. Drive out fear. Okay, here's my... Here's my scheme, then I'm going to stop. Oh, and two, um, two other quality principles for us. My observation, number one, higher education faculty will not coach each other or invite coaching in the absence of affirmative administrative support because we're too shy. That's just how it is. You can ask people to do it, but you can't ask them in the abstract. You have to say... Michael, you will go to Michael Hare's class on this date, and if you can't go that date, pick another. And <clears throat> on the other hand, we're working with a workforce that would make this a promising enterprise. And here's the 1.5% solution. 1.5% of payroll, that's my budget. Two visits per professor per semester to somebody else's class, including a half an hour reviewing whatever assignment for that class was so you know what to expect, <clears throat> and provide some kind of feedback to the visit you made. And that's in the tone of the three best things about this and the three things that I'm going to try to copy. Um, maybe also three things that would make it even better. <clears throat> Comment on this, all teaching does not happen in a classroom. Written critique could be brief on the syllabus or the assignment. That's an hour. <clears throat> Organize peer and seminar discussions among the faculty in a unit, hour a semester, two-hour meeting once a year. And professional development events like this. And you guys, are, look, you guys are halfway to your budget already. What do we get for that? All the evidence, all the evidence from quality assurance in industry, including service industries, is that this pays off in the following four ways. Do we want to spend 1.5% of our precious faculty payroll on a project of this kind? Hey, I'm uh, Matt Bozer. I'm an instructor at University of San Francisco. I did my graduate work here. Uh, a technical question and a philosophical one, briefly. Uh, technically, even if you do the clever trick of setting what Berkeley does now as sort of the standard for good, 5% of what we do now is not, it's not a meaningful thing to say without establishing some kind of scale. You can't, it doesn't, you can't take 5% of what we do now and have that be a thing that is a meaningful 
number. Are so you that, referring to my, my time budget or? No, the earlier question of if we were to improve learning outcomes by oh, 5%. by 5%, yeah. With, absent a scale of our per, current <clears throat> learning outcomes, that's, yeah. it's just not, it's not a meaningful mathematical thing to say. Philosophically, uh, <clears throat> I, I think it's. I think you maybe need to. Not you don't have to do anything. The, my question is: Is higher education is the lear, is the outcome of higher education learning? Is it not a sort of a system of appropriating people to jobs or you know workplace placement or I, I mean, is there any infrastructure for even determining how well people are learning? At all, is that really what we do? Well, this is, I don't want to. I don't want to take over too much of the question time. There is some evidence around. Um, Laszlo Bach is the head of HR at Google, and he says that college grades tells Google nothing about probable success at Google. So that can't be it. Um, I guess we could throw up our hands and say, I mean, but. College education. I'm a, I'm a believer in the old theory of liberal education, and I think college is not just about making a living. But uh, you know, one's views might differ about that. Granted, I don't think measuring the percentage of increase is actually that important. If you do the things in my list, you will get quality improvements and cost saving. It's been shown again and again, even if even in places where it's hard to measure. So, that, but that's the best I can say now. Okay, uh, can I ask a question next? Uh, my name is Ellen Switkis. I think you're talking about two separate things that are related. One is the evaluation of teaching, and the second is in the improvement of teaching. And, of course, the evaluation of teaching, the Academic Personnel Manual, has all those things you're supposed to it do. Does it does indeed, yes. And, uh, but they're not done very much. But uh, doing those things, I agree, would, well, you haven't actually said that, but I assume you're implying, would certainly improve the teaching quality. Yeah. Actually, the, the list of the data to be collected in APM requirements for promotions is not all that different from the output of the exercise that I'm proposing. That's right. The faculty wrote that, and uh, the assumption was that there should be more, well, the that there should be more than one, just student evaluations yeah. for teaching, but it's not that done that much. Yeah. Well, the faculty on the budget committee is, and over time has come to take a different view. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I'm Larry McGid from the Goldman School, um, and I also teach at Mills. I, 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 I've heard pieces of this before, and I think it's really... Uh, spot on, but in my experience, and I've only been teaching uh, at the university level for about 10 years, but in my experience at three different institutions of higher education in the Bay Area, m my sense is that there, that there is some significant cultural resistance to allowing other faculty on a routine basis to come into our classes. Um, and I wonder whether you've thought about how to normalize, to use a currently popular phrase, how to normalize the uh, process of inviting and welcoming colleagues to come in rather than having people be, feel defensive and resistant to having colleagues come in on a regular basis and observe us. Um, quality starts at the top. <clears throat> if the dean or chair puts out a spreadsheet with everybody's semester visits listed, I think it's going to become normal pretty quickly, especially because we're basically like, you know, we basically like each other and we remain and we're going to give useful advice. And not, there's this, my friend Ronnie Heifetz at the Kennedy School had a, had a psychiatric, psychiatric practice and stage fright with musicians. And the treatment for stage fright is talk therapy. And it is, you know, imagine yourself in the audience. Are you waiting for the guy you paid $50 for a ticket to hear to screw up and do badly? No, you expect to have a great time. You're kind of on the same, well, I think this enterprise pretty rapid. I can't prove it. I think this enterprise pretty rapidly will establish a different affective framework. But it has to start somewhere, and it has to be legitimated with authority. I can't prove it. John Douglas here at the center. 
And uh, my question relates to uh, student-to-faculty ratios and uh, the large lecture uh, class format versus the seminar class format. <coughs> I didn't see much sense of differentiating the environment in which the faculty teach teach in. You probably know that the student credit hour is going up and up per, per faculty, and uh, student-to-faculty ratios are close to, on a UC-wide level, around 22 to 1, so way outside the realm of, like even a University of Michigan is closer to 16 to 1 or 17 to 1. So how does that fit into your, your discussion and analysis? At any, at any student-faculty ratio or ratio of resources invested in the teaching enterprise, teaching with a quality assurance program is going to produce more learning than teaching without. I mean, you're describing a separate problem. It can't be the case that because we have to work harder and teach so many more students, quality assurance won't help us do it better. Whereas if we only had small classes, then quality assurance would help us. Whatever we're doing, we'll do better if we, if we take quality. That's all I can say. It's, it's a different issue. Not that we shouldn't have better faculty-student ratio. Hi, um, my name is Aditi, and I'm a freshman here, actually. Um, so I, one of the things, uh, I guess, as a student uh, that I've realized is that being in a classroom, asking questions in front of everyone, um, there's a lot of people who want to sound smart. There's a lot of, um, you know, I'm just going to ask a question because um, I know that it makes me, makes me look good. Um, the people who have real questions that may not be the most intelligent questions that are very basic or very scared to ask questions. And, um, and, and when there's a professor or GSI that really doesn't know how to answer the question, very rarely do we find them saying, I don't know how to answer the question. And so in, in class, I guess, um, it really seems like everyone is kind of, uh, worried about not knowing the answer or not looking very intelligent. And so I was wondering if there are, yeah, how exactly um, is, would we be able, I guess, to do that? I mean, uh, for me, I would personally really like to see uh, professors or GSIs say, oh, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but let's look at it together and um, come into my office hours or let's do it in front of everyone. That conversation is at the core of the flipped classroom, active classroom, theory seat teaching. I can't, I mean, you know, my architecture professors answered maybe 10 questions in my whole three and a half years in architecture school. They were mostly asking the questions and expecting me to come up with good answers, of which there might be more than one that was right for the building I was working on. But that's, that's a pedagogical practice that if we saw each other doing it successfully would be more widespread, for example. And, and students, I think, very often are looking for, um, okay, I need to make sure that my question sounds really smart because I want this professor to see me in the oh, class, no. and I want, I want a recommendation letter. I always, it's always an achievement <clears throat> thing. It's never a learning thing. And yeah, well, this is the tension between formative and summative evaluation. Um, the more it feels like summative, the worse it's going to work. Performance evaluation is the most corrupt and incompetent management practice in every organization I've ever been associated with. And one reason that's true is that it feels like personal evaluation, and it requires careful management to constantly undermine that perception and say, no, no, I'm not evaluating you. I'm evaluating, when I have to, your performance at this task. But mainly, I want you to get think about different ways you could have performed it, one of which might be even better than one I can tell you. Let's exactly the conversation you're asking for. <clears throat> By the way, I think it helps a lot if you get the students to grade each other in class performance rather than attempting to do it yourself, which you can't do because you don't have the information. Thank you. Uh, your budget of the 45000 uh, Well, that's a maximum, right? Well, but it, it looked no, like there was only five hours. not to spend more than that. You know, so that was the five-hour uh, five thing seemed... It's way less. Way less. So, um, so let's do it. So you, weren't a, you were not equating the five-hour to 45000 No, $45,000 is the most you could spend. It would be, be very careful. Do not ever spend more than $45,000 Where did that number come from? Per, it came out of 5% of $300,000 worth of learning. What's, what, I still don't understand where the 45 came. 
$300,000 worth of learning is what we're delivering in a course, and we must believe that that's worth it. Suppose we could get 5% more. How much should we be willing to spend? We should be willing to spend no more than $45,000 per faculty member per year. My 1.5% budget is way less, so I advance it with confidence that I'm not hitting that ceiling. I mean, I can think of lots of ways to spend more than 1.5%, but I'll stop with that for the moment. Um, yeah, I'm curious about, because uh, you mentioned that you count the time you talk, and that you count time students talk. So how much time you talk, and how much time students talk? Generally and speaking, how many students in your class, basically? Well, this semester, 50, uh, sometimes 90. <clears throat> um, I don't know the optimal number, but I do know that when I've got data, <clears throat> my time has gone down and theirs has gone up, especially if, if I share the data with them. And my feeling is generally that's been good. Thanks. I mean, remember what Feynman said. You, you really can't tell people's skills. And the content is much better delivered on the web or in a textbook. Students learn stuff by using it. Michael, uh, uh, could we go back to the... the uh, Row that talks about driving out fear. Uh, could you say more about what your, how you think about that in the context we have, uh, and we might relate it, might relate it to the, the experience level of the students we have in our classes. We go from freshmen to, sometimes postdocs, uh, with regard to the character of anxiety or fear, and the possibility for the faculty to reduce that sense of fear for the students and for themselves? Well, one thing that helps a lot is if you're not afraid. So as a professor, if you can get your own ego anxiety under control, it's going to help the students a lot. Um, and there's a variety. I don't know. Richard, I, I'm going to pass this to you. You coach, you coach profs all the time about issues like this. I think you've begun to mention it already, and I think one of the ways you think about driving out something like fear is to understand what feeds the fear right now. What feeds the fear right now is, is a fear of failure, right? Getting it wrong gets you punished. But as Michael's been talking about, innovation requires risk-taking. It requires failure. That's part of the learning process. And so if you can design a kind of teaching method that is focused on the process of learning and not necessarily just getting the right answer, that there might be assignments and things that have more than one way to get there, you begin to sort of cultivate a culture around learning that is failure is a part of the process to get to where we want to go, and then we're not scared of it anymore. So what we evaluate is what gets valued, and we have to look at how we're evaluating student learning to see, is it valuing the process? Is it valuing failure as a piece of it? Does that help, Mike? Well, Todd is the one who had the problem. <laughs> um, it's not only my problem. I've, I've taught here for almost 50 years, and uh, uh, Michael has, named, has, has identified a range of things that uh, when you can carry them out uh, has at least a, at the subjective level uh, a, a remarkable effect in the quality of the experience of students as they report it in terms of how they, what they learn. Uh, and so that if you the, the, in one, one answer to the question you go to, you go to the top line say quality starts at the top. If you think about what the character of our, our experience of others evaluating us, whether as students or as, uh, as, as faculty members in this regard, um, we don't usually get the, the message either from around us or from outsiders that says actually failure or not getting it right is, should be an opportunity for learning rather than for punishment. Uh, and uh, so you've got to really say that over and over again. The, the, yeah. uh, uh, and so that I, 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 I really asked the question because it seems to me the rest of it is, is 
won't work if you don't have a sense of, <coughs> of, of uh, uh, it's okay, in fact, it's a good thing to, have, to, 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 to not do it right is the source of doing it better together. And that's very rarely the message one gets either in classes or from your peers or from administration or from outsiders. There's, a, there's bad practices that most people would agree are bad practices that have worked their way into a fair amount of teaching. And one way that teaching could improve is to have less of them. Um, so, I mean, I think this is an example. If you, if you greet your colleagues in the, every morning with, hey, guess what I read in the newspaper this morning? And they say, well, I don't know. No, guess, guess. You're not going to have many friends. It's not, a good, it's not a good mode of social interaction. You say, hey, I just read that Flynn resigned. Wow. That, that usually goes better. Um, well, we do a lot of that. Um, giving people new problems instead of solutions to problems they know they have is kind of, you're starting off with a deck stacked against you. If you can't, you know, um, none, of my, none of my colleagues in architecture school wanted to learn about calculating beams until they had to design a gymnasium with a very long span roof, and they had to know how deep the ceiling had to be to hold that beam to know how big the stairs had to be. And stairs, or architects care about stairs because that's in the plan, right? They don't care that much about structure. But, well, suddenly everybody was gathered around my desk asking me to tell, remind them about beam formula. That's one example. Um, setting team members against each other. Very bad, <laughs> very bad management practice. Um, motivation by fear of any kind is generally not a good way to proceed. Um, Deming, Deming says don't give prizes. Now, this is interesting. We, we spend a fair amount of time around here giving a teaching prize. And yay to the winners of the teaching prize. A few years ago, I called the, the teaching, uh, the, the poor work-study student who was at the desk of the <coughs> committee on teaching. And I said, hey, where can I get the videotapes and the syllabus and stuff from the winners so I can copy stuff? And no one had ever asked that question. She said, well, um, I, I, I guess you can... Um, Call them up and ask them, and you know maybe that you could visit their class. Why would you do this if it's not if you're not trying to spread these practices? And Deming says just don't do it because you're going to reward random variation, and you're going to create out of 20 salesmen, of whom you send one to Hawaii because he beat the whole rest of them. You're going to create 19 pissed off losers, and next year that one won't make the same target, and everybody will be mad at him, and his wife will be saying, "Hey, how come we're not going to Hawaii again?" Very destructive. Um, why do we have problem sets? I don't, know, I don't know anybody who wants more problems. Why do we call them that? You know, why start out with our feet nailed to the floor? Uh, red pen. We write on students' work with a red pen. I never write on a colleague's papers with a red pen. It's grade school insulting. Uh, right? It's just affectively bad from the start, so don't do it. Very hard to turn off red and track changes in Microsoft Word. Just bothered me. I have to keep switching it back to blue so I don't look like a grade school teacher. It's lunchtime, right? Okay, lunch is open for business. Let me. Uh, Thanks for the good questions, everybody. Say a word. Our next colloquium is not till, is March the second. Two senior administrators from UC Merced will be here to talk about their plans for growth in the future by 2020. It'll be quite an interesting session. But please uh, join us in thanking Michael for his presentation and lunch is served. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.